And so uh, it's Hanukkah, and, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, this is really part two. This is like Hanukkah part two. Uh, last week, we talked about the, um, uh, uh, the, the meaning of Hanukkah in the sense of uh, uh, the providence of God, that God is involved in this world, and Hanukkah is a celebration of a victory that took place in this world, you know, with very imperfect people, uh, uh, but God had put in their hearts the need to uh, recapture the temple and, and cleanse the temple and dedicate uh, uh, the temple. They were very imperfect people. Uh, uh, and in fact, the victory was somewhat short-lived uh, in, uh, in history. Uh, uh, and, and it reminded us, we said last time, it reminded us of uh, modern Israel and the Zionist movement. I just finished our uh, mini-course uh, on Zionism and what it means to us, uh, mostly looking at the history of it. Uh, and we saw very imperfect people uh, who uh, founded the, the uh, land of Israel. And we looked at what they did. We saw some of those imperfections at work. Uh, but all of it, in retrospect, was the hand of God. In the middle of it, you would never think it's the hand of God, you know, while it's happening. Because it isn't this glorious march to Zion, you know? Uh, good people die, bad people die, good people do bad things, bad people do bad things. It, and uh, it's the nature of sin and war and uh, enmity in this world, sadly. But when we look back on it, we can see the sovereign hand of God working in imperfect uh, people. And one of the things that we see uh, in uh, all of these um, all of these events is uh, uh, that these the victories are short lived, uh, even though we see you know God at work, and we have to ask ourselves why is the victory short lived? And I would suggest a lack of a lack of the king, a lack of the leader. There are leaders. There have been leaders. Uh, but none certainly perfect, none who do just right, and most uh, who uh, are relative, some are relatively speaking better than others. Uh, but there has never been one who has taken our people all the way, so to speak, and has come into the land and the lion laying down with the lamb and, and swords being turned into plowshares and and, uh, and all of that. And so we saw last week in Zechariah uh, chapter 12 uh, how in the end, when we look forward to the glorious future, that it takes place in real-time history with imperfect people and that bad things are going to happen uh, and that it will be very difficult and there's going to be lots of sin and lots of death. Um, but that time there will be indeed a victory and we saw how God was going to make all the way at the end Jerusalem a stone of stumbling and we talked about that and, and how there would be a war with with nations and and how uh, uh, God would empower Israel and it says that the clans of Judah would be like God and so there would be this uh, uh, cataclysmic uh, war where Israel will be victorious uh, and we've seen, not cataclysmic wars, but wars where Israel is victorious against all odds. We saw that in our, uh, well, the Maccabees, victorious against all odds. Uh, the Zionists in 1948, 
victorious against all odds. In fact, they themselves were not confident. That's sort of an untold story. My son, you know, my son gives me this pipeline. Uh, he's living with an 89-year-old Israeli man who fought in every war through 1973. So he, uh, he hears, he told me uh, that, yeah, uh, that even uh, among the Israelis, they were uh, not sure, you know, is this thing going to work uh, with declaring statehood uh, and knowing that there's going to be this war? Well, uh, there, was, there was victory. And then uh, in 1967, an unbelievable uh, a victory. And then in 1973, even caught by surprise and even having the wind knocked out of them for the first few days. Uh, it didn't look good, but then came back and Again, defeated the enemies, gained territory, and every, every time that is indeed what happened. And, and you know that is the hand of a, a God. But every victory has a price. That's what we, learned in our, what we learned in our class is that every victory that Israel had was victorious, but it came, at a, it came at a price, and then there was a price to pay for being victorious uh, to this very day. None of those victories led to lasting peace. See? But the day will come when there will be uh, this, again, this time a cataclysmic type of uh, event and battle, but it will end with peace because there will be an embracing of the, of the king. Of the king. So we saw that last time and we ended right at a very interesting place. At the end of uh, Zechariah, Chapter 13. Zechariah is a post-exile prophet. That means that he prophesied after the Babylonian captivity. That's really late. Okay, That's like way after uh, Isaiah. Hundreds of years after Isaiah. Okay, uh, And also uh, more than a hundred years after Jeremiah. All right? Uh, after the captivity. Remember, they were in captivity for 70 years. And all those prophets prophesied before that. All right? Uh, you know, all those written uh, books of uh, prophets. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, written a little bit before and during the beginning of the captivity in Babylon. But only Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi come after. Okay? So they're very late. And Zechariah and Haggai wrote around the same time. They write about the same things. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. They were contemporaries. They wrote at the same time. Okay? Uh, uh, now, when the Jewish people returned uh, to uh, uh, Judea, Judah, then it became known as Judea, uh, uh, very few pe- relatively speaking, few people came back. The estimate, none of us, were any of you there? No. Uh, yes, right, almost, right. A few years after, right. Um, approximately, the, the uh, conventional wisdom is, is that about 40,000 people returned. Okay, millions left, but about 40,000 returned. And when they returned, it was around, oh, around 400 or so BCE, 400 years or so before the Messiah came, right? For a thousand years from that time, the center of the Jewish world was in, no, Babylon, okay? The center of the Jewish world was in Babylon, even though 
the temple was rebuilt and people would come to Jerusalem three times a year. But that's why the Babylonian Talmud is uh, the uh, Talmud um, uh, that uh, is... um, that is viewed as authoritative, as opposed to the Jerusalem Talmud, because Babylon is where the schools were. And right there in back where Baghdad is today, and all along the Euphrates River, in all those little towns, those were, many of them were Jewish towns, and they're, and they're mentioned in the Talmud, uh, because that was the center of the Jewish world. When the Jews went to Babylon, they were there for all the way till about 500 CE or AD. That's a long, long time, okay? So, uh, a smaller group of people returned, right? This is important to know, a little background for uh, Zechariah. And they were known as a remnant, okay? They were known as a, a, a remnant uh, returned, all right? So when they came back, uh, you know, Jerusalem was overgrown, the temple was in shambles, destroyed, there were marauding gangs, is you know a good word for it in our world today uh, uh, that were uh, very dangerous and and uh, hurtful to them to these uh, to the people who had returned uh, and so it was really uh, quite difficult uh, for them. So here uh, you have in all those writing prophets this expectation that after the captivity that's going to be the end and and everything's going to be we're all going to return to Eretz Yisrael, and, and, and that's going to be it. And here, uh, there was great disappointment uh, because it was still very difficult. They returned, and they were victorious, and they built a temple, and it was their land, and it was Judea, and they had problems with the Samaritans. Sound familiar? Right, okay? Uh, and so the victory coming back came at a price, and there was a price to be paid. And there was very, uh, uh, when you look at world history, uh, all the way uh, from, in the entire Second Temple period, the entire time, I'm taking way too long explaining this, but okay. Uh, the entire time that, uh, from the time that Cyrus let Jewish people come back in Zerubbabel and Joshua brought them back, all the way to the destruction of the temple by the Romans uh, and the expulsion of the Jews, very few years, there's a very few years where there was like real peace and no uh, worries. Uh, there was a short period of time uh, when uh, Judea was an independent nation. Very short. But it was, if you read the history of that time, it was filled with corruption and all kinds of strange marriages going on uh, and strange... Uh, events. Uh, event, uh, there was even an event at Sukkot where the people in Judea were so angry that they threw the etrogs uh, at the leadership. Kind of like a Knesset meeting today. Okay? All right. So it's, it's a colorful history. All right? Uh, but a difficult history. Always a difficult uh, uh, history. So in uh, Zechariah, chapter 12 and 13, you have at the beginning of chapter 12, it says the burden of the word of the Lord. Masa is the Hebrew word, oracle. Uh, sometimes you have in your translation. It usually refers to a judgment, all right? So the way this is written, if you read it carefully, you have it basically in chapter 12 and 13. Chapter 14 is written very differently. 
Chapter 14 is written very apocalyptically, globally, like cosmic uh, type of, uh, of events uh, uh, in the land. Uh, but chapter 12 and 13 is like prose, narrative of uh, what's going to happen at the end. So if in your Bible, if it's anything like my Bible, it's probably written in English, and it's indented in verses 7, 8, and 9. Is your Bible indented or look a little different in verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 13? Okay, it should because it's written a little differently. It's in the form of poetry, all right? It's in the form of poetry. And got to take that MSI course. We know what poetry means. When you come to these poems, it's a seam in the text. They play a very important role uh, in the literature, the way it's laid out, okay? So uh, uh, the poetry here is sort of like an epilogue, almost. Uh, and it separates the apocalyptic explanation in chapter 14 from chapter 12 and 13. So we want to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. We want to look at this little poem in chapter 13 because uh, we usually don't read it. For some reason, we don't read these words uh, and we're not used to them. We, most of us are familiar with like chapter 12 where it says, and they shall recognize him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, right? 12.10. We all, you know, if you know anything about uh, Jewish work, Jewish ministry, that's, we know that verse, Right? But chapter 13, in verses 7, 8, and 9, is, uh, is utterly fantastic, uh, as we'll see. So you have in chapter 12 and 13 this explanation of this war. Israel will be empowered by God, and there will be victory. And then Israel will mourn because Israel will repent, and Israel will be saved and recognize the Messiah. And then the land will be cleansed. That's what we read in chapter 13 in the first six verses that the land itself will be cleansed, and, and so on. And so now you have 7, 8, and 9. All right? So 7, 8, and 9 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Uh, let's see. Yes. And against the man, my associate. How do you like that? When was the last time you heard uh, the Lord referred to as my associate? Okay? Uh, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will, I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Okay? So uh, this is, in a certain respect, kind of a summary of uh, much of what uh, Zechariah has been saying. But he also includes things from Isaiah that uh, are helpful. And so uh, remember, Zechariah comes long after Isaiah. And Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, was well known in his day. Uh, and so sometimes people refer to uh, the, what uh, some of these latter prophets wrote as having informed theology. They were informed by what had been written before, you know? So like uh, uh, even uh, Jeremiah is informed by some of what Isaiah wrote. And so is Zechariah, as we'll see. 
So we, say, we see here, it's sort of like a whole new thing. Like how does verse 6 and 7 relate? Well, it kind of ends in verse 6, and then you have this poem uh, beginning in verse 7. That's why it's a little different. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate. All right, so first what we see here is uh, God is speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So we see here that uh, earlier in chapter 11, in chapter 10 and 11 of, uh, you don't have time to turn there, but you can read it on your own. In chapter 10 and 11, we do read about shepherds, the shepherd, and we read about bad shepherds uh, being judged. In Ezekiel chapter 34, you read about the false shepherds of Israel and that the sheep are scattered because of the false shepherds and then God will send his own shepherd, right? And interestingly enough, tradition has it that Ezekiel 34 was actually read during Hanukkah in the first century. So that's interesting because Yeshua himself uh, was in Jerusalem for Hanukkah and we know that from John chapter 10 in verse 22. It was the Feast of the Dedication, right? Okay, so it's interesting that we here we read about this shepherd here at the end of chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God's shepherd, right? Now, then he uses another word, amitai, and against the man, my associate. Now, different translations uh, have different terms. Some say my companion, my friend, my neighbor, the man standing next to me. I think the ESV has that. The man standing next to me. This is a very interesting word. The only time this word is used in the whole Bible is about five or six times all in Leviticus. And every time it's used in Leviticus, it's translated, well, almost every time it's translated neighbor. Like, uh, you know, anything about doing something to your neighbor. Uh, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Uh, neighbor. Okay? Sometimes the word friend is used. I think in one passage, in my English translation, it's translated friend uh, or a companion. A close, close associate. That's why associate is, a, is an interesting, interesting choice for an English uh, translation. So this shepherd is very close to the Lord in a unique way. No one else is ever called this uh, other than uh, generically in, in the laws of Moses. But in terms of a, a personal relationship that God has with someone, the word is never used except right here. Okay? All right. So God's shepherd, uh, God's man, God's uh, a close uh, associate. All right. So we see here that the shepherd is struck. Now, what you see here is, in a way, a, a, a different perspective, the same event, but told a little differently than how it is recalled in chapter 12, just a few verses earlier. When the Lord returns, right? The Bible says, Israel, our people, will recognize him whom they have pierced. They shall recognize him whom they have pierced, right? That's Yeshua, the Messiah, right? But here it says, God takes a sword and strikes the shepherd, not the people. In Zechariah 12.10, it's the people whom they have pierced. Here, you have a different point of view. 
God does the piercing, one might say, with the sword. And I would suggest that this is informed by Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. In Isaiah 53:10, it says, But the Lord was pleased, speaking of the death of Yeshua, the death of the Messiah, right? The suffering servant. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will, he will see his offspring and will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So here we see, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. See, this is very interesting. Many years ago, I, had a, I, I remember distinctly because it was a very difficult conversation with a person who was insisting that Isaiah 53 was about the Jewish people and insisting that it was about the Jewish people in the Holocaust. You know, how the, the, suffering, the sufferings of the, of, of the servant, okay? And so I pointed out, if that's the case, then we have a real problem with verse 10, where it says the Lord was pleased to crush him. So that conversation ended. But, uh, so here we see almost, you could say, from a human point of view, from a horizontal point of view, how could that be? See, but from a providential point of view, God is at work in mysterious ways in the actions of people. Not that the actions of people get justified, but God is at work. That's why he's so beyond us. That's why he's the potter and we're the clay. If we like to think of ourselves as the potter and him being the clay, so we can fashion him and history the way we want it to be. But it doesn't work that way. History is full of craziness. Uh, you know, uh, when you look at uh, the victory of the Maccabees, served as a motive, serves as a motivation today, even in Israel, for the IDF and all of that, you know. But think about it. It was horrible. The things that took place were horrible uh, in the, the Maccabean revolt. Lots of people died in this. I, I think the establishment of the state of Israel, glorious. Yeah, but it took pogroms, two world wars, and a holocaust. How does that happen? I don't know. But in, in the heavenlies, God works through the sins of humanity to move history forward, to bring his will uh, uh, to pass. That's why the big Hanukkah verse is chapter 4 and verse 6 of Zechariah. Not by my, human might, not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Human might and human power lead to death and destruction, hedonism, greed, violence, temporary victories and truces, but never lasting peace. Only God brings victory. See? And so we see here, coming back to Zechariah chapter 13, that from the point of view of the heavenlies, one might say, we see the providential hand of God. God strikes his shepherd. And he uses the term shepherd, right? Because if you read Ezekiel 34 very carefully, there you see that God will place his shepherd on the throne. He himself will shepherd 
his sheep. And so here, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, is indeed the, uh, the shepherd. Then it says, at the end of verse 7, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Ay, 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 ay. Well, one of the things that we know is that scattering, the scatter, that word is used in a number of places in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures, going all the way back to the Torah. And that scattering was a judgment. Being scattered among the nations was, a, was, was not a good thing. It was a, it was a judgment. Okay? Uh, and when you look at the Bible history, for example, when you read First and Second Kings, if you're taking the uh, if you're taking the course on the former prophets, prophets one, what is First and Second Kings about? It starts with an F. Don't let me down. Failure. It's about failure. The failure of kings. The failure of Solomon. The failure of every king that came after him. Even the failure of Hezekiah. Even ultimately the failure of Josiah in what he tried to accomplish. That it never had, it's a sad story and it ends with captivity. If the, if the Hebrew Bible it just ended with, the, here's the history, you have the Torah and then Joshua judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. What a horrible story. It ends in failure. Everybody's gone from the land. Sin, destruction, right? Uh, and so a lack of the king, a lack of the promised king that God promised to King David, you know, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, and so there were shepherds, but they all failed. All the shepherds failed. And so the people were scattered. And as a result of those failures, it had a cumulative effect on the Jewish people. Because after the Babylonian captivity, there really wasn't even a shepherd. There was no king. You had governors, and it got really crazy. Especially like the last hundred years leading up to Yeshua. Uh, it was pretty chaotic when you read about the history of the leadership uh, of the Jewish people. There was no shepherd. And so what happens? What is the cumulative effect of all of it? That the true shepherd comes and the people don't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. At the end, they'll recognize him whom they have pierced. But when he came, they didn't recognize him. Even the people that were supposed to recognize him, you see, uh, 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 did not recognize uh, the uh, the shepherd. And as a result of not recognizing him and rejecting him, scattering comes again for 2,000 years. And even to this day, even to this day, yes, there is a state of Israel. There is a land of Israel. Yet, uh, it, is not the, uh, it is not the utopia. Uh, and neither do all Jews live there. Thank you very much. Right? Right. Uh, we saw in our Zionism course, we watched uh, as the, the uh, Six-Day War was about to begin, we watched a speech by Menachem Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, okay? And he talked about the Holy Land, and Israel will be victorious. Uh, and then we watch another speech by him after the victory about the settlements. And he says, we never must give up land. That is the Holy Land. But I pointed out that he was saying all of this from Brooklyn, Okay. Never did he go to Eretz Yisrael, all right? So it's not exactly the end uh, where from all four corners of the earth 
uh, all of the Jewish people have, uh, have gathered. So, in a way, we're still scattered and we're still uh, in exile. If you look at a map of the world, I know uh, Paul was just in Australia. Paul, are there synagogues in Australia? Are there Jews in Australia? Are there Jews in Alaska? We, there are. We even know some. Okay? Uh, and, and there are Jews in the United States. These are the uttermost parts of the earth, my friends. Okay? Uh, compared to where Jerusalem is. And so we're still in exile. We're still in this state of scattering. Okay? And bad things continue to happen to our people. Throughout all of history, still, even in Israel, bad things happen. Out of Israel, bad things happen. In Europe, bad things are happening again. Uh, in the United States, uh, uh, bad things are, are, are happening. All of this scattering is taking place. And this is basically what the prophets have said, going all the way back to Deuteronomy, that you're going to be scattered and then you're going to return. See? And so... In this little three verses here, Zechariah is giving from a heavenly point of view what happened, why it happened, and what's going to happen. All right? All right. So uh, he says, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Not necessarily little ones as in little children, but against the sheep, the people. Okay, uh, and certainly um, uh, we read in lots of prophets that God brought calamity upon the people to get their attention so that they would repent and ultimately sending them into exile for which we still are paying the price in 2014. Okay, all right. Then he explains this hand against the little ones. And he says, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third of it will be left. Okay, two-thirds will perish, a third will be left. Now, in, in Zechariah's day, he understood himself as part of a remnant, part of the remnant returning, okay? But certainly this was not speaking of, of his day. He's, it's speaking of a future day from his point of view, all right? So... It's speaking of a day when there's going to be, again, this cataclysmic war, and two-thirds of Israel will die. Two-thirds of all the Jewish people will die. One-third will be left. It will be a horrendous time. You know, none of us were alive in uh, 66 to 70 AD. And uh, when we talk about, you know, the destruction of the Second Temple, we just say it like it's... Destruction of the Second Temple. The Jews went, you know, uh, left the land. That was horrific. Horrific. A good portion of the Jewish world was massacred at that time. But yet we do not ask, well, how could that have happened? Because it's so institutionalized now. It's, it's, just, it's just something in history that took place. See? But it continues to happen to this, uh, to this very day. And there is a terrific price to be paid by not having the king as the leader. And a terrific price uh, uh, to be paid uh, 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 for being the chosen people. As Tevia said in Fiddler on the Roof, choose somebody else for a while. See? All right. So now he talks about this third that's left. I will bring the third part through the fire. 
Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. All right? So this is really important. He's giving an explanation and a value to the suffering. He's giving meaning and significance to suffering. All right? We may wonder horizontally, how could this happen? And as humans, we should ask that question because if we don't ask that question, our head's in the sand. I mean, really. When bad things happen to good people, you know, uh, if you have a heart, the heart of a human being, you have to say, wow, that's horrible. You know, and you weep over bad things. When you hear bad things on the news, you know, it, we should weep. We should be concerned. Not just see ourselves as, well, it's the will of God and let's go on. No, that's not how it's supposed to work. We really should be uh, concerned. Yet, we trust that in some way, shape, or form, God's hand is in this. I do not know how, and I do not purport to know why. Who do we think we are? But we believe and we trust that somehow, in some way, God's hand is in it. And that's what he's saying here. That through the suffering, Israel becomes refined. God is not as much here concerned about us as individuals as he is about us as a people. And that's all the way through the Bible, by the way. And so we become refined. So I find it interesting. When we sing the song, Refiner's Fire, and we're like, Refiner's Fire. That ranks right up there with uh, Blow a Trumpet in Zion, if you know what I'm trying to say. Okay? They're, They're difficult passages of Scripture. You know, bad things happen when the trumpet is blown in Zion and the fire and and we're being refined, you know? And we need to remember that when we're singing those songs. Uh, But what you have here is Zechariah is giving significance to the suffering because at the end of the day, this will bring repentance. This will bring us to our knees. This will bring us the cleansing. This will bring us to Messiah. You know, there's two, two times they end just before Messiah comes and returns. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Two different times. The time of Jacob's trouble. And it is a time of Jacob's trouble. God is bringing judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 20, it says that at the end, he's going to bring Israel out into the wilderness and judge them. And so when Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved, it's this remnant. It's this third It's this group at the end who are refined through the fire, see? Now, we know we're living in this in-between time. May I suggest that Israel, Jewish people who come to faith in Yeshua, are the beginnings of this remnant, the beginnings of this remnant. And one could say all believers, everybody in the world who embraces Yeshua is a remnant of humanity uh, who, uh, who, uh, believes because the world is going to be judged. And when you read uh, the book of Revelation and Ezekiel 38 and 39 and, and the, four, the 12th and the 14th chapter of here in uh, Zechariah, most of the world is going to be on fire, so to speak, uh, and tremendous death and tremendous destruction. See? And so, uh, but here he's talking about, about uh, Israel. And so we see from the point of view of the heavenlies, there is meaning in it. Not that God is pleased in the suffering. He's pleased that the Messiah would die because of his obedience for the sake of the nations, for the sake of Israel and the nations. 
that through this suffering, there would be this refinement. Through this suffering of the Messiah, there would ultimately be resurrection and new life. And so, uh, that's why we see, they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So the day is going to come when there's going to be another Maccabean revolt, but it's going to be cataclysmic. Another Hanukkah. Another time when we'll say, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that time, Israel, the Jewish people, will embrace the king. The one who has the power and the authority to bring the peace. To bring peace with the aggressors. To bring peace with the Arab nations and Arab peoples to bring peace all around the world. There's no leader in Israel or America or anyone else that has the power or the authority to do that. And that's the problem. And so here, from the prophet telling Zechariah, look, that day is coming. That day is, you may not, he doesn't live to see it. He lives to see maybe the rebuilding of the second temple, but he doesn't live to see the day of real peace. And but, but you see, that day is indeed coming. And that is why at Hanukkah, Yeshua was in Jerusalem at, at Hanukkah, and he says, at Hanukkah, I am the good shepherd. When we have Messiah's table, we're identifying with Messiah. We're identifying and we're saying, I belong to him. So what we're saying today is, he is the king, and I embrace him. He is my shepherd. And you know, in uh, uh, Psalm 22, we read about the shepherd dying and being raised from the dead. In Psalm 23, we read about the shepherd taking care of us today. And in Psalm 24, we read about the shepherd manifesting himself as the king. Yeshua is indeed the good shepherd. Not just historically the good shepherd, he is the good shepherd today. Even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because we've embraced the king. Israel today has to fear evil in, in, in the state of Israel. We ourselves in this world have to fear evil. I mean, there's lots of evil. You could just become absolutely abjectly depressed if you just observe the world around you and watch the news long enough, right? Even if it's the news you like to hear. You know what I mean? Like which network you like to watch. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it doesn't matter. But you see, we have hope because we have the shepherd. We know that he's the king. We have this great secret that we need to share with the world. That Yeshua is indeed the king. And that he's the one who can deliver the goods. And he did deliver the goods. And you see, we might say, well, why, why is all this suffering? In the, from the view of the heavenlies, there's this refinement going on that we don't understand. And we don't understand, let me tell you, we don't understand why this person, something happens to this person, but not to this person. We don't know. Don't put yourself in the place of God, you know? Or the people who are saying, you go to the left or you go to the right. You know what I mean? It's, we're, we're, we're not the people who make those determinations. We're just sojourners on the journey, helping one another to get through it with an assurance that there is indeed a city out there. We may see sand and horizon, but there is indeed a city. Lord God, we thank you uh, for Yeshua. 
We thank you, God, uh, that you have indeed sent the shepherd. Lord, uh, if we were living 2,000 years ago, we would be totally confused as to why the, the shepherd died in the way that he did. It made no sense if he's indeed the Messiah. But from the point of view of the heavenlies, it made perfect sense. Thank you, Lord, that when the Ruach was poured out, you gave those disciples eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know, and to be able to make the sense of it, and to be able to interpret it as he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. Thank you, Lord, that we can understand that sad, tragic history of the life of Messiah in a glorious way. And so, God, help us to see the refinement even that has taken place in the history of Israel and even in our own lives, Lord. And thank you, God, that the day will come when Israel will indeed recognize the shepherd and will mourn and will repent. And this will lead to a world transformation of repentance and to a new heaven and a new earth and where no one will even know what war is. They'll have to look in like ancient, ancient history to even know what the concept was. That's what you're going to do. And that all came because you took a sword and struck the shepherd. And that happened because the sheep were scattered. But the end result, Lord, is redemption. And thank you for that. And so, God, we identify with you. We trust you, Lord. We don't understand it. We weep, we cry. Even we ourselves groan, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can trust you, the author and finisher of our faith, the King of Israel. We pray in Yeshua's name.